Hi there. This is City Book and Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grimion, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Welcome to City Book and Company. Today we're talking with Stephen Kleinberg. He's the Rice professor who's been tracking demographic trends in Houston for nearly four decades. Amazing uh, long tenure working on this kind of stuff and tracking the development and the trajectory of the city. And he has some fascinating things to say about where we've been, where we're going next, what our challenges are, what our assets are as we face those challenges. It's going to be a terrific interview. He's also the author of a new book called Prophetic City, Houston on the Cusp of a Changing America. So looking forward to getting into that. I should note that we're taping today from the Georgetti Houston. This is a beautiful new residential building in the upper Kirby area of Houston, this is a unique design and architectural project. It, it's a partnership with the Giorgetti Furniture brand, which is a 124-year-old fine Italian furniture maker. And this is the first time they've ever partnered with a, a developer anywhere in the world. And this building is beautiful, and uh, we are honored to have the opportunity to tape a few episodes of City Book and Company here. Before we get to Professor Kleinberg, let me say hello to Luke Brauner who is my co-host for today. Hi, Luke. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Luke, as regular listeners will know, is the producer of City Book and Company and also the producer and host of his own podcast, which include the H and 30 Pop. Here's what's on my mind today, Luke. Yes. Listeners uh, will be hearing this a little bit later. We tape a little bit in advance. We're a couple of days away from the inauguration of a new president. Yeah. COVID is not over. There's been turmoil at every level. A lot of people thought and hoped that something magical would happen at 12.01 a.m. on January 1, and we'd go from the horrible, abominable year of 2020, and something magical would happen in 2021, and it would all be better. And it hasn't. It hasn't been better for a lot of people. I've talked to people who are good friends who announced that they're surprisingly depressed, uh, having trouble sort of easing into... I think there was this hope that something would happen and everything would be better, which is not really reasonable to expect that. But yeah. I think a lot of people did. Where are you on 2020 versus 2021? There's like a 0% chance for me that 2021 won't be better than 2020. I mean, <laughs> there would have to be a lot of loss in 2021 for it to compare for me to 2020. I had a really, really difficult year, as did so many, but lost some very dear friends and, you know, just a lot. There was a lot of loss in 2020. But whilst 2021 has not started off maybe as great as we all hoped, I do still feel hopeful. I still think that things will continue to improve. And hopefully by the time this episode releases, they already have begun improving for a lot of people. So We just aired a few episodes of City Book and Company in which we talked to some chefs. And listening to those again, it kind of made me think about some of the way that 2020 affected me, specifically I'm thinking about food because we had these chefs, and how that's led to changes in my life that are still with me. You know, we couldn't go to restaurants as much. We were careful about going to the grocery store. I think a lot of people did a lot more cooking in. A lot of people cooked different, shopped differently, got groceries differently, prepared food. I, I did all of that. I made massive changes. I, I, I reflected on like my mom. We lived in a very small town in Louisiana. And you didn't just go to the grocery store. You're, you didn't decide I'm going to make 
you know, pasta carbonara tonight and go to the grocery store and get those yeah. ingredients. You went to the grocery store like maybe once a week, maybe, maybe not that often. And you'd buy a bunch of staples and you'd buy what was on sale and you'd buy what was seasonal, but you'd buy a lot of things. And then you'd, you'd think through what you were going to cook and you basically prepared what you had on hand, mm-hmm. having gone to the grocery store less frequently. And so I'm actually still cooking that way. That's a change that I made during COVID year 2020 that I think is going to follow me. It's more economical. It's easier. It saves me time. I'm still a little bit concerned with COVID, of course, so I still try to avoid the grocery store. So all of that that I picked up nearly a year ago has followed through. Are there things in your life that you have changes that you made to adjust to 2020 that you think might become permanent? Yeah. I mean, working from home, I think has become permanent for me. I mean, so I had a studio before, you know, I was in town every day at the studio recording, whatever. And when COVID hit, I stopped going into the studio. I mean, entirely. I think I made two trips to the studio after March 12th in all of 2020 and and eventually shut it down and moved everything home. And that's just kind of become a full-time thing now. I mean, I I work, you know, I've got a great little setup and now it's like, I don't really anticipate. I do a lot more zoom interviews than I ever did before. I mean, I I hated doing remote interviews before, but I do so many of them now. It's just, you know, it's just kind of part of it. And so I have really settled into, and my dogs have really settled into having someone home all day long. And so, yeah, so I think that will be a, probably a permanent thing for me, or at least for like the foreseeable future, you know, many, many years, I think I'll still be working from home and I love it. I mean, it's, I'm wired. I was telling people when COVID first hit and social distancing was a thing, you know, that was kind of the new language and quarantining all of that. I was like, that is my jam. Like I am all about I'm an introvert's introvert, and I am wired to sit in front of a computer at home all day long. So I think it's going to be interesting years from now to reflect on this big pivot that so many of us made. 2020, such a terrible year in so many ways, and yet it informs some big changes in our oh, lives yeah. that I think will be with us for a while. One of the reasons I hate remotes now that we're talking about it is because it's so unpredictable and as an engineer, I can't control everything. And so one of the things that you'll actually hear in this interview is because we weren't in the same room as Dr. Kleinberg, I can't manipulate his mic and stuff. So you'll hear some kind of audio noise throughout the interview. I think it's not too terribly annoying. It's sort of intermittent, but I do want listeners to sort of know going in, the audio noise you're hearing is not on your device. It's on the actual interview. So a few little problems with the sound there, but the interview itself fascinating. Yeah, well worth listening to for sure. We are just about to speak with Dr. Steven Kleinberg of Rice University and the fabulous research that he's done for 40 years. We will get to that after a very short break with a much appreciated sponsor. We'll be right back. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. And it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof. 
which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at envoymortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. Dr. Kleinberg, welcome so much. I asked you before we started taping here whether you prefer Dr. Kleinberg or Professor Kleinberg or Hey You or Steve. I may just surprise you and mix it up as we go through. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you kind of a big question to start. I have attempted to kind of explain what I think it is that your work entails and what you do for a living, but I think you're probably better equipped to explain that. Can you just kind of off the top say what exactly you do at Rice and what this work is all about? Well, when I first came to Rice in 1972, and until very recently, I was a full-time professor of sociology in the sociology department at Rice, and began in 1982 to conduct this annual survey that has tracked the remarkable transformations of Houston. And now I'm, and then out of that came the Kinder Institute for Urban Research, and I'm a, the, the founding director of the Kinder Institute, and I work there in continuing the surveys each year, and we are about to begin the 40th annual survey, asking a representative random sample of Harris County residents reached by random telephone numbers in each of the years, how do you see the world? What's happening in your life? And we have watched the world change. Houston has turned out to be one of the most interesting and consequential cities in America. After riding the oil boom for the first 80 years of the 20th century, and then sudden collapse, and then this recovery into the new America of the 21st century. It's really quite a dramatic story, and I want to get into a lot of the details of that story. But let's take a step back and get a little bit of your story. Where are you from? You're not a native Houstonian. In fact, I think that's the first line of your new book. I'm not a Houstonian, but a native. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you come from, and how did you get into this line of work? Why were you attracted to sociology and demographics, and how did all that lead you to Houston? Well, I've always been fascinated with social change, and and I, I think I said in that book that I grew up in New York and went to Haverford College, a wonderful liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia, and then Harvard, and then taught at Princeton, and I figured that's where I was going to be, somewhere in the Northeast Corridor, and then got this great offer from Rice University. Never have I been, had I been east of the, west of the Mississippi, and so we went for a couple of years, like so many of us, right? So many people have come to Houston reluctantly, yuck. The job is there. We'll go for a couple of years and then discover it's a very common story. That's right. So so I ended up at Rice and and uh, and then fell to my lot in, in, in 1982 to teach a research methods class of sociology majors. My my field has always been studying social change and attitudes and perceptions and and survey research. So and, and Houston, of course, was booming. One million people that moved into Houston between 1970 and 1982. Riding the oil boom, 80% of all the jobs in Houston were tied into the price of oil, and the price of oil increased from $3.20 in 1970 to $35.50 in 1982. The booming economy, a city world famous for having imposed the least amount of controls on development of any city in the Western world. Who cares if it's ugly? So what if it smells? It's a smell of money. Come on down. So we Exactly. No, no zoning and all of that. No zoning. Uh, world famous for having imposed the least amount of controls on development of any city in the Western world. Uh, and so I, we did a one-time survey to measure how are people balancing this incredible growth 
with growing concerns about traffic, pollution, crime, what kind of city are we building with all this affluence? We did a one-time survey, never occurred to us to do it again. Two months later, the oil boom collapsed. The price of oil had gone from $3.20 to $38.50. We were building and borrowing on the basis of $50 oil, suddenly fell down to $28 by the end of 1980. So you create this survey, and, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about the methodology and all that in a minute, but you go out and study these trends in these demographics in a city that then as soon as you get the first survey done, a massive change to the fabric of the city. So the results seem suddenly out of date. That's right. Or it seems clearly we better do another survey and see what's happening now because 100,000 jobs were lost in Houston by the end of 1983 in this city that had known nothing but economic boom from its beginnings until that fateful day. So we said, my gosh, we better do this survey again. And then we've been watching this remarkably interesting city go into major recession, the worst regional recession of any part of the country since, since World War II. Uh, one of every seven jobs that had been in Houston in 1982 had disappeared by 1987. And then recovery into a very different world, a new kind of economy, a demographic revolution, and a growing awareness of the critical importance of quality of life issues as a pro part of the pro-growth agenda. If Houston's going to make it in the 21st century, it has to turn itself into a destination of choice, a place where the best and the brightest people in America will say, I want to live in Houston. And so it's those three central new realities, an economy that used to provide lots of good blue-collar jobs. Suddenly now education has become the critical determinant of a person's ability to earn enough money to support a family, growing inequalities in Houston, predicated above all else on access to quality education. And then this, and this demographic revolution, this biracial southern city dominated and controlled throughout all of its history by white men, has suddenly become in the last 30 years the most ethnically diverse major metropolitan area in the entire country where all of America is going to look like Houston in about 25 years. We are there first. And how we navigate this transition will be enormously significant. So Houston has turned out, as I say, to be maybe the most interesting and consequential city in America, the least well-known city. We, no one outside of Houston thinks much about this. Uh, and, and so part of my goal in writing this book called Prophetic City, Houston on the Cusp of a Change in America, is to make the Houston story more widely available. So you come in... And it sounds like your sense of it is that you begin this project, this survey, right at a moment. I mean, it just it couldn't have been planned any better if you'd been able to, where the city is making this massive change right before your eyes, just as you begin the process of doing these annual surveys. Tell me about the process of... When did you know this was going to be a very long-term project for you? And tell me a little bit about the Kinder Institute and their role and sort of the players that came together to make this a massive, one-of-a-kind project that's unique in all the country. Well, well I tell people I, I get unfairly credited with having planned to study Houston. As I say, we were talking before, it was a one-time survey. never occurred to me to do it again. And I finished teaching that class, uh, and then it became clear, my gosh, this is suddenly – you know, I had no idea about anything else except the collapse of the economy and, the, and, and how are people responding to this after having experienced, as I say, a, a, a eight, eight, eight decades, 80 years of continued prosperity during the 20th century predicated above all else by our location near the East Texas oil fields. 
80% of the jobs in Houston were tied into the price of oil. If I'd been smart and had been planning this, I would have done a couple more years of the boom period. <laughs> and Rice is this wonderful university with extraordinary students, and, and I would have just kept teaching that, that class each year with new students each year, and then and became just clear that this was a really interesting opportunity to have an objective external. What I love about the surveys is I can tell people, look, don't blame me. I'm just asking the questions. Here are the answers. And people are answering the questions differently today than they did five and ten years ago. And you can watch a city reimagining itself, reinventing itself, recognizing that the 21st century is a different place than the, than the 20th century was in the strategies that worked so well for Houston when our location in the East Texas oil fields was the basis for our wealth need to be rethought as we think about how to position Houston for prosperity in a world of, of transformation in the economy, in the demographic composition of the population, in the, uh, uh, in, in the necessity for quality of life issues to, to attract the talent that will grow the businesses of the 21st century. Houston's location in the East Texas oil fields accounted for everything in the city's prosperity in the 20th century is counting for less and less and eventually for zilch in the 21st century. Houston needs to reinvent itself if it's going to be positioned for, for prosperity in this very different technological, demographic, and economic reality. You've talked about Houston being the city of the future that plays into the name of your book, Prophetic City. There's some future telling going on in what's happening for all of America in what's happening in the story of Houston. Explain that a little bit. How, how is it that Houston has become, and why is it that Houston is this sort of crystal ball for the rest of the country? So the one area with, which, which is unmistakable is, of course, the demographic transformation. The census has a projection for what America will look like in 2050 in terms of the distribution by age and ethnicity, and it is a picture of Houston today. We are where all of America is going to be as the 21st century unfolds. We're there first. This is where, for better or worse, the American future is going to be worked out in terms of the demographic shift as we shift from a nation that was an amalgam of European nationalities into becoming a microcosm of the world. America is the first nation in the history of the world that can say we are a free people and we come from everywhere. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in Houston, Texas. But it's also that the shift in the economy, Houston was riding the resource economy of the industrial era, right, with oil and gas and and the, the big employers in Houston in the 1970s was Hughes Tool Company, Cameron Ironworks. You could drop out of high school with a strong right arm, expect to be able to make a middle class wage. And those jobs have disappeared. And education has become critical and it's sharper, more clearly focused in Houston than anywhere else because we were riding the oil boom much longer than the industrial world that had already begun to collapse in the 1970s uh, in, in the Rust Belt. Houston was still booming. In and then this, this shift from a set of strategies that worked for, for, for this city when, when it was the industrial era. We are in fundamental transition from a world where the source of wealth was natural resources, which was the basis for the wealth of Houston and Texas, into a world where the source of wealth is knowledge, skills, education, and, and the resource of the knowledge economy is housed between the ears of the best and the brightest people in America. And suddenly you can see that too in, in Houston more clearly perhaps than anywhere else. So it's, it's, it's a claim that I think you can, you can back up to some, some important degree that Houston is really a very interesting place. 
And it's a city that continues to have a Hindu spirit, a belief in itself, a belief that uh, 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 prepared at, at any one time in this history of Houston to say, okay, what do we need to do to position the city for prosperity? And today, that answer is different than it was 15 and 20 years ago. And we can watch the general public increasingly being uh, understanding that and seeing this. And so that does give a picture, I think, of where we're going to, whenever we replicate the national polls, the Houston surveys come very close to, to, to what you see in, in, the, in the nation as a whole. Dr. Kleinberg, I would say that much of the reason that I live in Houston today is because of your research, actually. So I moved here in late 2009, and at some point, I want to say it was in maybe spring of 2010, I was working at a job where our employer showed us one of the Kinder Institute studies looking ahead at Houston. I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the study, but it was looking ahead and sort of projecting what things would look like in 2020. And when my wife and I moved here, our plan was to be here two years. We expected to hate it. We were like, let's do two years. And then we're moving to Portland or Denver or somewhere beautiful, you know? And I remember one of the things that came out of that study was it it talked about how Houston intended by 2020 to plant a million trees along like the freeways. And and I remember thinking like it reminded the, the vision that that study sort of laid out for us of what Houston was going to be felt so much like what we loved about Portland and we decided to stay. And I'm, I'm here still today. I love this city. I've produced multiple podcasts about this city. And I think that's largely thanks to you. So thanks oh, for that. Thank <laughs> but that's, that's exactly the point. I mean, that suddenly Houston recognizes that this, it needs to reinvent itself. And, and, and I think one of the transformative events tied in what you're saying is in 2012, when, when the citizens of Houston voted to tax ourselves $100 million, to be matched by 130 million in private monies, to take the nine major bayous that, you know, this is Bayou City. Those bayous were concretized in the cheapest possible way by the Army Corps of Engineers to serve as drainage ditches for our flooding problems. We voted to build 150 miles of linear parks along all nine of those bayous. So by the end of this year, 2021, 60% of everybody who lives within the city limits of Houston will be within walking distance of a bayou trail. And Houston will be one of the greenest cities in America. That would have been inconceivable to even imagine 20 years ago. So, and that's uh, glad to hear what you're saying because I think it really is a city that is trying to become, in some ways, like Portland. But it, but it's not Portland. It's it's its own special place. Uh, but but a new awareness of how critical quality of life investments are going to be. And and what's interesting in Houston also is that experience of. So many of us came here reluctantly, as I say, and then discovered, well, this is not not such a bad place. In our surveys, people complain because we invite them to about traffic, pollution, crime, the no mountains, the hot summers, the flying cockroaches. <laughs> we said, how would you rate the Houston area as a place to live? It's a wonderful place. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask, we've asked a lot of questions based around your findings in your annual surveys. Let's get it in a, a little bit of a, a flavor of the sort of nitty gritty of these surveys. What kind of questions are you asking? Who are you asking? How do you find them? Who's asking the questions? How do you actually do the work? Okay, beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a much more complicated answer today than it was when we first started. Because the, the, the goal of these surveys is we're going to talk to a thousand people and claim to be able to tell you how four and a half million people would have answered the questions within a known margin of error. And you can do that by, by what's called the Epsom, Equal Probability of Selection Method. If 
all four, four million have to have an equal chance to be called. And so what we did in the early years was, of course, everyone had landline phones. We could generate random phone numbers, random four-digit numbers of, uh, attached to the, to the prefixes that serve Harris County telephones. And people answer the phone. You know, now this all these horrible things like caller ID and answering machines. <laughs> but in those early days, we had 80% response rates. People answer the phone. What are you? Why, why are you calling? Me? Well, we don't we don't know who you are or where you live, but your views are really important to us. We're doing an annual survey that measures how we're changing over time. It's a short, interesting questionnaire. That and these are just people you f- that live in Harris County that you find in the phone book, uh, or that we generate by computer phone numbers. So unlisted numbers has to be called as listed numbers. Uh, and now, of course, it's much more complicated. So sixty uh, percent of the interviews are done by cell phone, forty percent landline. Uh, we're now moving toward toward the option of an internet survey. In addition, it gets more complicated and more difficult, but and more expensive. But it continues to work, and we are able to. To, to you know, there's a margin of error in our surveys a plus or minus. Three percent, so a change from one year to the next of six percentage points or less could easily be random fluctuation. But a change of seven or eight percentage points tells you people are answering the question differently today than they did before. And then we pick it up again the next year and the following year, and you can watch a shifting understanding. So here's one example: a question that we asked back in the 90s uh, that said, "Which of these statements is closest to your feelings about the public schools? The schools have enough money if it was used wisely." to provide a quality education, where the schools will need significantly more money to provide a quality education. Well, if it was used wisely and the schools have all the money they need, it's being wasted. That's what everybody thought, what 60% of people answered it that way in the, in the, in the 1990s. And then during the first decade of the 21st century, it was a 50-50 split. And we came back in 2018 and then 2020, when 58% now said the schools will need significantly more money to provide a quality education. That shift is a really interesting transformation that is there objectively. Here's a question we ask it exactly the same way. Here's the samples drawn the same way, the same three weeks of February, first week of March. People see the world differently today than they did. And you can see that transformation that is a reflection of the, of the, the shifts that have occurred in, in, the, in the realities that people are confronting. It's growing, growing uh, in, embrace the diversity that you can just see each year identical questions. More people today than five years ago and 10 years ago say uh, the increasing ethnic diversity system uh, will be a source of great strength for the city rather than a growing problem. Those kinds of questions give us a real sense of who we are and who we're becoming. And, and by having it over time, you can see where we've been. A, one, one, a, a survey that's asked in one or two years, well, is that up or down? Is that high or low? Is that good or bad? But if you have it over time, you're able to, to to really get a sense of what's happening in the city. And, and as far as we know, no other city in America has been tracked in this way for this number of years. And no city has undergone the kind of changes that Houston has so rapidly in the last 35 years. So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean. You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. 
This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part, when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again, never hassle with providers, only deal with real simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CityBook, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. So you've given some examples of things that uh, uh, where opinions have changed rather dramatically over time. Are there some uh, uh, points in which the, 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 reaction from Houstonians has not changed. Are, there, are we still the same as we were 40 years ago in some ways? Or is it all just wild evolution? <laughs> uh, no, of course, the question is, uh, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> we're, I mean, clearly our, our interest has been in what changes as opposed to what doesn't. Uh, and we are the same, but we're not the same people. I mean, that's what's so interesting. We're certainly not by, you know, when we first started the surveys, 80, 80% of, every, well, in 1960s, 75% of everybody in Harris County was Anglo, and 20% were African American. This was a biracial southern city, and now it's 35% Anglo, 45% Hispanic, 20% African American, 9% Asian. This is where the four communities meet in greater balance, greater equality, all of us minorities, all of us called on to build something that has never existed before in human history, a truly successful, inclusive, equitable, united, multi-ethnic society made up of all the peoples, all the ethnicities, all the religions of the world gathered together in one remarkable place. It is a story of Houston in the 21st century. We're just a different folk today than we were Back back in the in the in the sixties and seventies, and when we began our surveys in nineteen eighty two, it was still a biracial world. Right, but the beginning maybe twenty percent were Latinos, but but it was still seventy percent or sixty five percent Anglo and 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 twenty percent African American, ten fifteen percent Hispanic, two percent four percent Asian, and then we began became the magnet for the new immigration of the twenty first century. Tell in in your book, you spend a lot of time going through. Uh, it, it's really in some ways a history book, uh, which I thought was fascinating. It's sort of uh, your analysis of a lot of important historic. You talk about uh, the Katrina uh, uh, hurricane and, and how that affected. You talk about Enron. You go back way further than that. You talk about the earliest, you talk about the Allen brothers and, 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 and the earliest days. Uh, and one of the things you do note with some care is how this, dramatic diversity that has come to Houston, how and when that happened. Can you just uh, put your historian hat on for a minute and sort of just take us through the history of Houston becoming the most diverse city? You mentioned uh, uh, the, the, the the Hispanic community. Uh, at some point in your book, I think you referenced that 
uh, in the 1800s, at some point, there were 20 Hispanics that lived in Houston. And now it's, you know, a, a huge portion of who we are and a, a part of our identity. Can you just sort of do a hundred years of history of the diversity of Houston? Well, okay, well, let's be it for all of America, right? Through all of its history between 1492 and 1965, 82% of all the human beings on the face of this earth who came to American shores, 82% came from Europe. Another 12% were Africans originally brought here as slaves to serve the Europeans. There was a handful of Chinese and Japanese working as farmers and laborers in California and Hawaii. This nation was an amalgam of European nationalities, deliberately so. For the last 40 years, that period, between 1924 and 1965, we were operating under one of the most viciously racist laws the U.S. Congress ever passed. Basically, that's to say, from now on, only Northern Europeans will be allowed to come to America. And, and that was the law of the land until 1965, when the racist laws were changed, and for the first time, non-Europeans were allowed in any meaningful numbers to come to this country. And, and so as we have, this country has made this fundamental transition from having been an amalgam of European nationalities into becoming a microcosm of the world, right? the first nation in the history of the world that can say we are a free people and we come from everywhere. And it's a remarkable change. Having the same moment as American economy is becoming fully integrated into a single global world economic system. America uniquely a microcosm of all the world in a way that is really striking. And Houston was playing that during the oil boom years, it was Anglos pouring into Houston because this is where the jobs were. By 1982, uh, you know, well, all you know, this tremendous growth of, of America, of Houston, was brought about by Anglos pouring into the city after the oil bust of 1982. The Anglo population of Harris County stopped growing. And all the growth of this, the most rapidly growing city in America, has been the influx of African Americans, Latinos, and Asians. And more than any other country, any other city in America, Houston is the epitome of this transformation from a European based, dominated, society into this microcosm of the world. And, and one of the things that, that uh, Anise Parker said when she was, that surprised her when she was uh, as mayor of the city was she said somewhere that all the, the, the languages of business across the planet, there are native speakers of that language in Houston building connections to the global marketplace. And, and this ethnic diversity is the greatest asset that Houston could have as it positions itself in the global economy. Second largest port in the country, the 16th largest port on the planet, the gateway to the, to the, to the worldwide economic system that, that is, uh, that is the, the world of the 21st century. Houston beautifully positioned because of its diversity to be, to be a major node for, for economic growth in the 21st century. And there were at least two major waves of Asian immigration, right? Yeah, it's good for you, right? I mean, well, well Vietnamese had the immigration, especially, it came in the two waves, right? The, the, the collapse of, of, of the Vietnamese, of the Vietnam War, that terrible ignominious picture of people trying to grab a hold of the, of the helicopters to get, to get out. The first wave that got out of, of, of Vietnam with the collapse of, of Saigon were the, were the, uh, Elite, where the collaborators of the Americans, the, the engineers and the and the 
uh, you know, the scientists and various, and they came with very high levels of education. And then came the Vietnamese boat people, the survivors of the killing fields of Cambodia, and the, the Hmong tribesmen of northern Laos, all coming with very low levels of education. Uh, and Houston became one of the uh, centers for refugee resettlement in America. And remember, the, I don't know if you remember the big fights between the Texas fishermen and the Vietnamese who were much more willing to work much harder, many longer hours. But but that that was part of the transformation that, that Houston has undergone. And and the Vietnamese came in these two ways. But the, so uh, a big part of the success of the less educated Vietnamese is that they moved into communities with highly educated Vietnamese, reaching out to them and supporting them and all sharing, sharing a, a sense of experiences that has provided real opportunities for for the, the Asian population to succeed. And the other piece of this, of course, is that this is a by bifurcated immigration stream. One group of immigrants are coming to America today and since 1965 with higher levels of educational backgrounds than we have ever seen in the history of immigration. Indian and Chinese uh, immigrants and African immigrants are coming with far higher levels of education than, than U.S. born Anglos. And the reason for that, of course, is that they had been banned for the entire 20th century from coming. And then when, they, when the gates were opened, the only two ways to get here was either through uh, having skills that were demonstrably needed and in, high, in, in short supply. So you had the Vietnamese, the, the, the Filipino nurses, the Chinese computer programmers, the, the Indian engineers, or by virtue of family reunification. And there was no one for any Asian or African to family reunify with. So they have come with extraordinary credentials. And then meanwhile, uh, another group, largely Latino, is coming with very low levels of education. Latino and, and as you were saying, Vietnamese. So you've got this bifurcated immigration stream coming into a bifurcated economy, growing inequalities in Houston, predicated, as we were saying, more than ever before on, on education. The blue-collar jobs that used to be here, the rising tide that used to lift, lift all boats during the 30 years after World War II, have basically been transformed into a world of growing inequalities. Uh, and 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 Houston is right at the center of of that question for Houston for the Houston and the American future. Will we make the investments to ensure that young African American Latino kids who are going to be the future of Houston have the education they need to be prepared to succeed in the global knowledge economy of the 21st century? There's a line from your book that I underlined. You, you wrote, no conceivable force will stop Houston or Texas or America from becoming more Asian, more African-American, more Hispanic, and less Anglo as the 21st century unfolds. So this is not a phenomenon that's in the rearview mirror. This is current and moving forward and will continue to change Houston and the country. It is, it is one of the dominant themes of our lifetimes. Right? Uh, and it comes from... Well, we were just talking about this extraordinary period after World War II when the rising tide lifted all boats. The average American man actually doubled his income in real terms between 1950 and 1970. And the average American woman was giving birth to 3.6 children in the huh. suburbia that had just been emerging after World War II. And that baby boom generation, 76 million babies born between 1946 and 1964, overwhelmingly Anglo babies, 76 million going through the system. Demographers talk about like a pig being swallowed by a python, not very comfortable either for the pig or the python. The leading edge of those 76 <laughs> million babies turned 75 this year. 
And we are going to watch a literal doubling of the number of Americans over the age of 65 for the next 25 years. And uh, a truly remarkable transformation. By the end of by by the by 2030, the youngest of those 76 million will have turned 65, heading off eventually into the proverbial wilderness, being replaced by a very different generation of Americans. So the story of America, and, and this is America, or the story of Houston, that Harris County. It's not until you reach people age 63 and older that the majority of folks are Anglos. And at each younger age group, the percentage of Anglos plummets, the percentage of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians surges of everybody in Harris County, Texas, not inner city Houston, not HIC, of everybody in Harris County, Texas, who are under the age of 20, who will be the voters and citizens and, and taxpayers of Houston in the 21st century, of everybody under the age of 20, 51% are Latinos, 19% are African-Americans, 9% are Asians, 21% of everybody under 20 is Anglo. So two big conclusions, right? Number one, it's a safe statement to make that if Houston's African-American, Latino young people are unprepared to succeed in the global economy, it is hard to envision a prosperous future for Houston. That's who we are and will be as a 21st century approach. And the other point that you were touching on is that this is a done deal. Close the borders. Build your fence. Close off America. Round up those 10 million people you think are illegally and send them wherever you think they're supposed to go. Seal off this country so not another immigrant or refugee ever again sets foot on this planet. On this, on this country of ours, 63-year-old Anglos are not going to be making a whole lot more babies. Right? So uh, <laughs> it is clear. You can go to the bank on this. No conceivable force in the world will stop Houston or Texas or America from becoming more African-American, more Asian, more Latino, and less Anglo as the 21st century unfolds. Nothing in the world can stop that. So the only question our generation has been given, okay, how do we make this work? How do we ensure that this diversity becomes, as you were saying earlier, a, a tremendous economic asset for this city and, and, and for this country and make sure it doesn't end up tearing us apart and becoming a major liability, reducing rather than enhancing our competitiveness? That's what makes what's happening, how attitudes are changing, who we are as, as, as Houstonians, being there first in a way that all of America is going to be as the 21st century unfolds, how we deal with this has some real significance. This is a place... Where, where this is not just the Houston future. This is the America. This is where the American future is going to be worked out. We are there for first, and that's what I think makes this such an interesting and consequential place. So much more with Dr. Stephen Kleinberg next week. Join us for the next episode of City Book and Company. City Book and Company is a production of City Book Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Brauner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America.